Technology is an evolutionary driver and has quickly changed the way we live, work, and think. Some say for the better, others for the worse. Now, as we embark on the next era of innovation, filled with AI opportunity and purpose-driven tech, as well as ethical questions and social gaps that could or have left people behind, is this a chance to reimagine the ecosystems that have defined our way of life? Or is it a chance to rebuild them entirely? Welcome to She Wonders, produced by BCG Brighthouse, where wonder can change the minds of people who can change the world. I'm Ashley Grice, CEO at BCG Brighthouse and your host. In this season, I'm wondering how we can rebuild the ecosystems that define our world today and reconstruct the way we make connections to create a better tomorrow. In this episode, we will explore the world of emotional AI and how responsible practices and future innovation will shape us alongside AI thought leader, Rana L. Kalubi. Rana is a scientist, entrepreneur, and author on a mission to bring emotional intelligence to our digital world. Her best-selling memoir, Girl Decoded, a scientist's quest to reclaim our humanity by bringing emotional intelligence to technology, follows her personal journey growing up in the Middle East and moving to the United States to become an entrepreneur, juxtaposed against her work building emotional AI. Thank you for joining us, Rana. Hi, Ashley. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to do this. I'm excited to do this too. So you've been in the tech industry for quite some time. When you first started, what expectations did you have for technology and have those expectations changed over time? So I've been in this industry for 20 plus years is one common thread in my career has been and continues to be how technology brings people together. So how we can use technology to help us connect and communicate in more effective, but also more humane ways. And what I've observed over the years, there's been kind of a a rediscovery of the importance of emotions and emotional intelligence in our world just over the last, call it, you know, five to 10 years, which has not been the case when I first started in this space. I remember my professors and pretty much anybody I met would say, emotions and machines, like, why would we want to do that, right? (laughs) And now there's just the celebration of the importance of emotions in our life. What do you think the impetus was for that rediscovery? Like why the five years ago did this become a thing in a way that it hadn't been a thing before? I think it's this recognition that emotions drive almost every aspect of our lives from how we make decisions. It could be a small decision, like what you're going to eat for breakfast to big decisions, like where you're going to work or who you're going to marry or like where you're going to live. Emotions are often at the center of these very important decisions. So that's very important, obviously, for, you know, marketers and product developers and creators, um, but also like how we learn and how it's connected to memory and how we form memories and, and then empathy, how we connect with each other. So I think as the science became more clear, people recognized the importance of emotions. And then, of course, the pandemic really, really underscored that. Absolutely. Nothing like a pandemic to give people existential crisis. You know, I know when I first started in Purpose, it was a really long time ago, like almost so long. I hate to date myself, but a really long time ago. And when I used to try to sell it back then, I mean, boy, did it take a visionary to say, Mm -hmm. yes, this is a good idea because Larry Fink wasn't talking about it and Business Roundtable wasn't talking about it. It was not mainstream at all. When you first were talking about empathy and AI, Nobody was talking about it. So what made that mission come alive for you? And how did you even start getting into that where you had this sense of persuasion? Like, no, no, I promise you, this is a thing you're going to want to know about. 
Right. I remember an aha moment that I can still kind of remember that event. So I grew up in the Middle East. I'm originally from Egypt. And, you know, I did my undergraduate there. And then I had the opportunity to go abroad to do my PhD at Cambridge University. And that was my first experience kind of being away from my family. And I was a new bride and my husband at the time couldn't travel. So he stayed in Cairo and I moved to England. And I remember sitting in front of my laptop, this is, you know, in the year 2000 and using chat, right, to connect with him. And he would often say, you know, how are you doing? And I'd be like so homesick, but I could mask all of that behind the machine, right? So right. it turns out 90% of how we communicate is actually nonverbal. It's your facial expressions, your hand gestures, your vocal intonations. But when you connect and communicate online, all of that disappears in cyberspace. And I had this aha moment. I was like, wow, the way computers are created and designed, it's killing all of these emotional nuances and, you know, expressions that, that make us human. And so that set me on a quest to build emotional intelligence into our computers, not only to improve human machine interactions and make smarter machines, which we're working on, but ultimately to allow us as humans to just have better, more empathetic connections. What I love about what you just said is you made AI feel very palpable to people who don't use that term comfortably. And I feel like people sometimes just put it in a box like blockchain, AI. These are things I don't understand versus it, it really is intrinsic to all of the discussions we're having these days because so much is driven by technology. When we think about this intersection, why is empathy an important trait to consider when you're working with technology, when you think about technology and humans, these pieces coming together, you know, how do you define empathy for humans? How do, how do you define it for tech? So if you look at the definition of emotional intelligence and in hu- actually, if you look at intelligence in humans, your cognitive intelligence, your IQ is important, but your emotional and social intelligence, your ability to tap into other people's emotional cues and use that to persuade and motivate and empathize, that's a superpower. So People who have higher EQs, emotional quotients, are better leaders, um, they're better partners, they're, they're better friends, you know, um, they're probably better parents. And I believe that that's true for technology, especially technology that interacts with us on a day-to-day basis, like our phones, like our, you know, cars, like our machines, our TVs, like literally, you know, we're surrounded by devices that are part and parcel of our everyday lives. And so I believe for these technologies to be truly effective, like for Alexa, for example, to move from being a very transactional interface where you're like, Alexa, play the song, to um, a platform that really gets to know you, that can be a health companion or a learning companion or a productivity companion, it needs to be able to have empathy, needs to be able to understand context and your mood and react to that. When we spoke the last time you said to me, at its best, AI makes humans more human. I've really thought a lot about that sense because you made the point about this intersection, this nexus of tech and empathy as being such a rich area for opportunity. You know, I'm curious when we think about the role that AI plays, you're so deep into it. Are there specific concerns that you have from something it takes away from humanity? You've told me all the things it adds. Is there something that you think tech can take from us that we can't recover in some way? 
I get this question a lot, right? Because we're in the business of building emotional intelligence and empathy into machines, which is kind of a very human, it's a right. very human trait, right? But, but to your point, the, the angle or the lens I put on this is that we're building all of this so that it could augment our emotional intelligence capabilities. So allowing us to be better friends and better leaders, et cetera. Um, the idea is not to build technology that's going to compete with humans, right? It's, it's a tool that's helping us improve, you know, live better, healthier, happier, more productive lives. I think that's very important to keep that angle in mind when we're thinking through the use cases. Obviously, there are a lot of concerns, right? There are privacy concerns, like your emotional data is just very personal data, so it can be easily manipulated. So that's a concern. I worry about bias in these systems. It could be used to profile and discriminate against people. It's important to to mitigate against, you know, data and algorithmic bias, for example. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people would argue that technology today is either slowly becoming or is already an integrated system. If you think about smart products, IoT, neural networks, blockchain, they're all connected to different parts of our lives. When we think about that, that ecosystem that they're creating this interconnection, how do you, in your opinion, think that that changes the way we live? as humans? Oh, it changes everything about the way we live. I mean, just taking AI as an example, it's becoming mainstream. And most people don't realize how mainstream AI is. Like it's baked into almost every interface we use on a day-to-day basis. And it's starting to take on roles that were traditionally done by humans. So for example, it could, you know, it could help you hire your next coworker. It's going to drive your car, you know, help you make health-related decisions, right? So that opens up a lot of questions around, you know, when we're designing these systems, are we incorporating the human elements? Is it a human-centered approach to thinking about these technologies? Or are we just thinking about the functional aspects of these devices and these technologies? And that's my concern that, you know, we're so focused on building the best voice recognition system. We're not thinking about, okay, when we build this into an actual device that everybody's going to use, like, what are the implications of this? And What are the human-centric elements that we need to consider? And is it equitable? I think that's one of the things that always comes up for me, which is, you know, that sense of can AI really accomplish that kind of lack of bias that we're looking for in order to ensure that equity is out there in a different way than equality, right? Those two different definitions and what that means. Have you seen a gap between those who really benefit from these AI systems and maybe others who get left behind? Have you observed that in any specific spaces? And if so, how do we guard against that happening? This is definitely one of my concerns about all of this. I grew up in the Middle East and I can easily see that, you know, both individuals, also organizations and governments who have access to AI are going to be way ahead of, of folks who don't. And that concerns me. Hold on, my son's about to come in. Tell him to come in and say hi. Yeah. All right. Come say hi. Come say hi. Hey. Okay. I'm Ashley, by the way. Hi. It's nice to meet you. I'm talking to your incredibly smart, empathetic, and technological mom. Can I ask you a quick question? When you go to school and people are like, what does your mom do for a living? What do you tell them? Um, I tell them she works on like emotional emotion recognition technology. And like tracking people's emotions and stuff like that. So we have a demo. He'll sometimes over dinner will he'll pull up the app and show people. <laughs> like great. <laughs> I mean, what a good advocate. That's awesome. You're a good advocate for your mother. I love that. All right. All right. I'll let you go. We won't put you on the spot anymore, but thanks for making a cameo. 
Bye. Bye. I love the fact that he can explain what you're doing, which goes to say, right, that the platform is accessible, that ecosystem can be incredibly accessible, but people have to understand it. So what you were saying right before he popped home is this idea of there is concern that some groups have access to this and some don't. There are a lot of cultural and social norms all over the world in different aspects of society that really dictate how technology is embedded maybe into different regions or into different lives or into different value systems. When we think about that concept, what do we need to consider when we're pushing for adoption? Like what are some of those factors? Yeah, we talk a lot about the ethical development and deployment of AI and specifically emotion AI. I served on the World Economic Forum's Global Council of Robotics and AI for a number of years. And it was just like multi-stakeholder, constituent, very international, very global group of people. And it was fascinating to me how different countries thought about privacy and data and access to technology, right? A lot of AI requires a ton of data. Machine learning algorithms are very data hungry. So thinking through the data pipeline is very important. And that also includes the diversity of the data, right? So again, being just very purposeful around, okay, where am I getting this data from? Is it diverse or not? Is it representative of my customer base? You know, I'll give you an example. We do a lot of work in the automotive industry. And a couple of years ago, a luxury brand approached us and they basically said, we were gonna give you a data set, please run your technology through it. At the time we were doing driver monitoring. So we were looking for signs of distraction and drowsiness in drivers, you know, give us the results, we'll pay you. I took a look at the data. This is a global luxury brand, right? They're deployed in almost every country around the world. And we looked at the data and it was collected from one of their research centers in Poland. So it was middle-aged, blue-eyed, blonde men. And we were like, this is not representative of their consumers, of their users. So we had a decision point. We had to decide what to do as a startup. We could just run the technology through the data, get paid and be done or which is what we did, we sent the data back and we said, this is not a diverse data set, right? We need to, so we upped the bar, right? We raised the standard for the industry. And I think we need to keep doing that. Just really prioritize issues of diversity and and equity and inclusion and privacy and bias. You know, we think about that in the work that we do here. We think about that as one of the, the roles in the world that you have to play. If you are the harbinger of asking the right questions, finding the right data set, trying to find the set that does the the best for the biggest group that you can. You know, that sense of that role in the world, somebody has to be the integrity person that sends the data back. And so for me, that's where part of that link between innovation and entrepreneurialism and tech and AI come together. To me, there's this like nexus of purpose that lives within that space, which is why I find this so fascinating. I do believe that doing the right thing and just having these core values and ethical standards are going to matter because the consumer is going to start. I hopefully consumers are going to ask for this higher bar. I think they will demand it in the same way that, you know, we've been busy here at BCG Bright House because people, consumers are demanding that companies are purpose driven, that they have exactly. integrity and ethics and they fundamentally understand who they are at their core and they're doing good things for the world. And here's why. So I think that demand will really be there. I also get a sense sometimes that it could be generational, but you will say something about AI and people, I've heard the response, well, those are just going to take human jobs. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, in some cases they are, but when you get those questions, how do you mitigate those fears 
in people that may be justified or unjustified, depending on where they sit inside that ecosystem? I think AI, like with any technology, has a lot of potential um, positive impact on the world, but there are also a lot of concerns and job loss is definitely one of them. To me, that presents an amazing opportunity for reskilling. And we're actually partnered with, and I'm also an investor in a number of companies that are helping with that, taking jobs that are going to go away and using machine learning to recommend similar jobs where you could use the same skill and capability, but deploy it in a different industry, for example. But again, that puts a lot of, you know, there's a lot of responsibility for organizations to really think through that and invest in reskilling their employees and team members. Well, I'm glad you brought up investment because I know this is something that you've been thinking a lot about recently, and I would love to hear your point of view, what activities you've been doing, how you think about that when it comes to bringing investment into this space. Yeah, I'm very passionate about that. So, you know, I spun out of MIT 12 years ago and I sold the company last year. And, you know, I've had to go through raising money, you know, venture funding from a very male dominated community, for example, you know, I've raised over $50 million of venture funding. And, and I just feel like it's so important that we invest in more female founders, but also have more female investors to invest in different ideas, underrepresented human beings and underrepresented ideas. And so I'm starting my own fund. Um, The idea is to identify these early stage AI focused companies and world changing founders and share my experience with them, help open doors because investment isn't just about the money, right? It's, It's about connections and shared experiences. So I'm excited to do that. And you know, and it's always investment is always about faith and management, right? People invest in ideas, yes, but they often invest in management that executes them. If it's not too much to say, not too much to get into, you mentioned the investment community is very male. Yes, it's also very white. So when you think about the concept of investment, how do you, if you do, apply a DEI lens to how you want to approach this? Or do you do it in the same way that you do on the gender side? Or is it additive, differentiated? I would love to know. What I'm focusing on with the fund is to identify these, not just female founders, but underrepresented minorities. For example, I'm an immigrant. I didn't grow up in this country, right? You know, immigrant founders can be very powerful. They're very motivated and driven. There's just a lot of barriers that you have to overcome. For example, when I spun out of MIT, I was on a researcher visa. And I couldn't really start my company until I applied for a green card and got the extraordinary alien visa or whatever. (laughs) And you have to navigate these systems that you know nothing about. And so it could be like these simple things that you wouldn't ordinarily think of when you're thinking about starting a company, but you still have to figure those out. I just want to pay it forward with similar, you know, again, underrepresented founders. So for our white male investor audience who might be listening and thinking, I want to help with that. I want to do that. How would you recommend based on where you sit that those individuals could use their white voice, their privilege to help investment in this space? Like if you could give them direction, say, this is what I need. What would you tell them you need? I would say make space, be a sponsor, be a champion, seek out these individuals and these organizations and support them, right? And connect with them. The pipeline's there. It's just that it's siloed, right? My mentors, I have incredible male allies and male mentors, and I'm super grateful to them. And and I just think we need more of them. (laughs) You've got an audience and you can tell them exactly what they want. Because a lot of times, you know, even sitting as a, a white person of privilege, having discussions about DEI in house, right? Sometimes I know what I should do with my voice and sometimes I don't. The concept of sponsorship, 
versus mentorship can always be really important. So many women of color in business will get the, uh, well, you know, you need to have more presence. You need to have a bigger presence. Come on, man. You don't need to have a bigger presence. You need to make space for somebody else to speak. Absolutely. Um, okay. You've been in this space for, so I don't want to say a really long time because you're incredibly young and incredibly accomplished, but you've been in this space for some time and you've certainly seen it evolve over the years. If you had a chance to start over, what would you change in order to get to where you are today in a way that maybe was faster, I don't know, more responsible, differentiated? Would you change anything if you could do it again? Great question. I think one thing I would change is invest in my ecosystem way earlier. Like my solution to everything was to just pour more hours of work and work in the early days was coding, right? I would literally just like spend more and more hours coding and coding and coding. And I actually think investing in your ecosystem is super important. Finding, you know, partners and allies and just friendships and allowing for serendipity of connections. I mean, also I had like really young kids while I was running the company. Um, you know, I didn't attend meetups and I didn't attend business dinners and things like that. And I think investing in these relationships and building an ecosystem around you is so important. It also allows you to use your time wisely. This is something it's probably taken me too many years to learn, but I do know when I, when I became a CEO for the first time, I have a good friend in, uh, from college, from university. His name is Rahul and he's always been a good advisor to me. And he started his own business right after Princeton. And then he sold it X amount of years later. And he does, you know, wonderful things with his investments. And he was calling to congratulate me on my job. And I said, you've been a CEO. What would you do? And he said, every single hour you spend has to be the most value added hour you can spend. So create the ecosystem around you to make that happen. And I thought, I oh, that. that's, that's solid, sound advice. It took me much longer to do it than I probably should have. <laughs> but it was really good advice. It was really good advice. And I still think about it. And sometimes when I go to do something myself, I'm like, no, no. Rahul would say, not the best use of your hour. Not the high, you know, the, the highest, the highest value add task that you could do right now. Um, and so I think a lot about that because I think that ecosystem is what helps support to then be able to take whatever movement it is yep. that we are trying to put into place. Um, I don't know, out into the world faster, better, more efficiently, whatever that is. One thing that I've realized over the last few years is the importance of storytelling in a startup journey. Because at the end of the day, as a leader, you can't, you're not going to do it alone. And so you need people to join you on this journey. And so if you can tell the story and inspire people and, and also build a vision of the future that doesn't yet exist, right? So you paint a picture of what this amazing future will look like and bring it to life so that people can rally around it. And I just think that that's such an important skill. And as a technical founder, it took me a while to realize that. It's an incredibly astute insight. And I think a lot of times people think about storytelling in reverse, especially with startups. They'll be like, oh, I made it to this and I was successful. Let me tell you the story about my beginning and the impetus of how this idea happened. But the thing is, when you have a startup, you're going to grow so fast. If it's going to take off, it's going to take off. And part of that storytelling is about getting that ethos right. And if you do it right, you stay within what we would talk about as purpose-driven guardrails. You mm -hmm. stay within that. So however you're growing you get to that, you know, to the mountaintop you want to be on from a vision perspective, check, but you're always headed towards the North Star. And people sometimes, I think, startup-wise forget to do it in the moment. They assume maybe their, their story, that energy, that idea from the founding perspective is pervasive and everybody understands it. But as humans, we don't always understand everybody else's story really critically, like putting it down on paper, getting the vernacular, 
getting the points down just the way you want to tell it is so critical in the beginning because it will also help you grow, I think, responsibly. Um, you talked about thinking about a vision for the future. So let's say, let's look at 20 years, 50 years. Where do you see AI and tech heading? What would be your, your guess? Ooh. Well, um, again, I'm very biased in the way I think about this because I'm thinking, you know, technology in the future is going to interface with us just the way we interact with one another through conversation, through perception, and through empathy. And so if you take that as a given, you know, the second order effects of that, it's going to unlock all sorts of new devices and, and, and new, yeah, new technologies. So imagine if your fridge, for example, had a mood chip and it knew that you were stressed and about to like eat your fifth tub of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, <laughs> right? It could lock down, right? It could lock down. It could basically say, Ashley, you've had too much ice cream, done. <laughs> yeah, no more for you. But, so it becomes really interesting once you imagine a world where um, emotion AI is part and parcel of our interfaces and what that unlocks. And I think actually one of the areas that I'm most excited about is the application of this emotion AI and human insight AI to um, health and mental health in particular, because mm -hmm. we know that there are facial and vocal biomarkers for mental health disease. And given the amount of time we spend in front of technology, we have an opportunity to collect that data, get people help. It reminds me of a story that I find really intriguing about this woman. I think she's in the UK somewhere that can actually smell Parkinson's. Like she's able yes, to- that. She's able to identify preemptively, like people have already gone into that state, but it's not in, in full crisis, it's such a specialized space. But the idea of knowing and being able to help do intervention to save pain and suffering in lives in that way could be an unbelievable application of AI technology. Exactly. If we can figure out what she's cluing into and, and kind of build an algorithm that can do that, how interesting could that be, right? And then you could scale it and... You know, that allows for early diagnosis of Parkinson's and, and other sorts of diseases. And all those things. And then if you apply it, as you said, to mental health, mental health issues right now, especially we know pandemic-wise are so pervasive, who knows what kind of then societal improvements we might have if people were in that space. So my last question for you, back to, back to, to one that's more about you as a human being. You know, one of the things I really love about your book Girl Decoded is how you really find your purpose. You talk about humanizing technology and connecting with one another. As a longtime purpose practitioner, I would love to know, how did you arrive at this? And having this purpose, how did it maybe give you permission to break through, break rules, to follow the dream that you had, which has clearly become crazy successful? It's so interesting because for me, I have this deep conviction that this technology can be used for good and it's going to have an amazing impact on the world. I started through my research at Cambridge. And then when I came to MIT, the first project or use case I explored was to help autistic kids. So that was my foray into the health space. And I just think this technology can be so powerful and I can almost see it, right? It's so weird. I can literally see the future <laughs> with this technology enabling it in so many positive ways. And that's the drive. That's what's driving me to keep pushing at this. And it hasn't always been easy. So for example, I moved away from Egypt where most of my family are and I came to this country and I'm so grateful, but I had to raise, you know, two kids on my own. So it wasn't always easy, but when you have a purpose and you have this deep conviction and you have this faith too, you just go for it. I love that. I do think that is the case. Like they're in a world where it's incredibly busy 
you and I could probably work all day, all night if we wanted. You know, I'll get people who will say, how do you get up in three in the morning and do this, do this call? Or why do you fly across the world to go do X, Y, Z? And it's because of that purpose piece, because it's motivating, because I love that work, because I fundamentally believe in the power of I'm helping others do. Mm-hmm. That feels good to me. It feels like I'm taking whatever abilities I have and applying them in a way that does that beneficial externality piece of public health, which matters to me. And so it's much that we operate in different worlds, but I think we operate for the same reasons in many ways. Absolutely. Um, I cannot thank you enough for doing this conversation. I've been looking forward to it. I've been intrigued since the last time we chatted. I think we covered a ton. (laughs) I'm thrilled. I mean, come on, you kidding me? Like right before I go to vacation, I get to be inspired by this kick-ass woman. I'm so glad we were able to do this. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to She Wonders with our visionary guest, Rana L. Kalubi. Check out our other episodes in season three, Evolving Our Ecosystem.